have adopted us as sons and daughters, that because of the power of the gospel, Lord, you have taken us from our place of bondage to sin, and you have set us free, and you have put us in your family for all of eternity. God, I pray that you would help us to live in the hope of that truth, that you would remind us every day that though we stumble, though we sin, Lord, you never give up on us. Thank you for a love, Lord, that never fails. God, I pray that you would now meet with us as we study your word. God, that you would bring conviction in the places that we need conviction, that you would bring encouragement in the places that we need encouragement. And Lord, that uh, your spirit would guide us into all truth. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we are now in week two of a brand new series uh, that is titled... Um, Jesus, take the wheel, how to parent so that your kids don't become garbage people. Um, I will never forget the day that I became a dad. Uh, It was September 12, 2011. We were living in Virginia, and uh, Allison and I had only been married at that point for two years. Now, to begin with, we weren't at the time trying to have kids, Uh, We also weren't not trying to have kids, and so uh, voila, it happened. Um, And so at the beginning of the year, Allison had gone to her doctor uh, to get some blood work done. And uh, the nurse called her back with the results of her her blood work, and she she said to her on the phone, okay, uh, so your thyroid levels are a little bit high, so let's get you some medication for that. So we kind of shrugged, and we're like, okay, well, that's that. Thyroid medication it is. Well, some weeks later after that conversation, uh, she kept saying that she felt off, like something was different. And she's like, I think I should take a pregnancy test. Personally, I thought she was imagining things, and I feel like I had very logical reason to believe that because I I said to her, babe, you were just at your doctor, and they did a full round of blood work. If you were pregnant, they would have told you. My logic was irrefutable. And so she shrugged and uh, reluctantly agreed. But eventually, uh, she said, you know what? I I still feel like there's something off. I I really think I should take a pregnancy test. And I'm like, okay, if it makes you feel better, go ahead. Husband of the year, right? I know. So she took the test. And there was the faintest, slightest hint of a shadow of a line on that thing. And so we're looking at this test and our hearts start pounding and we're like, what does this mean? Is this, is this a positive? Is it not a positive? What's going on? And so we did what any rational person does. We Google it, right? And so we, we go online and we ask Dr. Google and Dr. Google tells us with link after link after link after link, a line is a line is a line is a line. And so we're looking at each other like, well, it kind of looks like a line, I think you're knocked up, girl. But we didn't know for sure, right? We weren't quite convinced. So we called the doctor's office. And we're thinking, you know, surely there's some mix-up. And so she calls the doctor and she holds the phone so that I can also hear what's going on. And she's like, hi, this is Allison Valilla, trying to do her professional voice that she always uses on the phone. She's like, I took a home pregnancy test, and I think it's positive. Now, I'm not sure what we expected the nurse to say. I don't know why you're shaking your head at me, babe. That's exactly how you sound. I don't know uh, what we expected her to say, um, but we definitely did not expect her response to be what it was. After Allison said, uh, you know, I took this pregnancy test. I think it's positive. The nurse goes, uh, yeah. That would make sense, considering you tested positive when you were here last to do your blood work. Did no one tell you? And we're like, did no one tell you? That's the answer that we're getting from our doctor's office? Like, what kind of clown show is this? Did no one tell you? And we're like, no, lady, no one told us. The only thing we heard was about thyroid levels. So what is going on, right? Did no one tell you? So she's like, all right, well, let's, let's bring you in to run some more tests. And, and now I'm like, more tests? Like, why do we need more tests? Is it a positive? Is it not positive? She just said there was a positive. The faint line. Now are they unsure? 
So now we're feeling more and more unsure. So we schedule an appointment ASAP. We go in. And at this point, I just need somebody to look me in the eye and tell me what's up. So um, we sit down in the room and the the nurse practitioner comes in and I go, ma'am, I need you to shoot straight with me. Is she pregnant or not? And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, she's definitely pregnant. We just need to know how far along she is. And so at that point, everything in our world began to to change dramatically. Um, I wasn't just me anymore. I was dad-to-be. And so I started brushing up on dad jokes. Um, I started trying on New Balance shoes and long socks. I started looking at lawn mowers and stuff in, in the, uh, the hardware store because I'm like, I got to get on my dad game. I knew that soon life would be fundamentally different. Before I know it, uh, we're heading to the hospital after Allison's water broke, which is a hilarious story, by the way. Ask me later to tell you that one. Um, It's uh, kind of not safe for work, but we can talk about it afterwards. (laughs) Going into September 12, um, if you would have asked me, do you understand the fact that God loves us the way that a father loves his children? If you would have asked me that, I'd have said, yes, absolutely. I understand that fact completely. I'd preached that fact a thousand times. God loves us the way that a father loves his children. I knew that that fact was true. But then Eli came into the world. So he's born and and the doctor, you know, puts Eli on Allison's chest and immediately we start singing to him the Notre Dame fight song. And the nurses are like, oh, is that, is that a lullaby? And I'm like, kind of. It's the Notre Dame fight song. Yeah, it's his lullaby. And so they bring him over to the side. They clean him up. They wrap him up. And uh, I go over and I held him for the first time. And, and inside my chest, my heart immediately grew. It's like that that part in The Grinch Stole Christmas, right? When you see that his heart grows three sizes that day. It felt like that was going on in me as I held this little nugget and I looked into his eyes and cried like a baby myself. I loved him, loved him so much. And, and there was a piece of me that I didn't know existed that, that was unlocked and And in that moment, it hit me. And I thought, ah, so this is what it means that God loves us the way that a father loves his children. See, I had understood that fact before. The concept made sense. But until I actually experienced having fatherly love, I didn't really understand what it meant. Last week, we started this uh, series on parenting, and we looked at the story in Scripture of Hannah and her son Samuel, and Eli and his sons Phinehas and Ferb, and how they parented differently, and how one invested into her son and the other did not, how one knew that her son belonged to God, the other did not. One valued her son's holiness over his happiness, and the other did not. And that's how all of us want our kids to turn out. But the others, they didn't turn out so well, and so Eli ended up raising a couple of fall wells. <laughs> now, in case you are here tonight and you're thinking, I'm not a parent, so this doesn't apply to me. Like I said last week, what I want to show us is that this stuff applies to every single one of us. And today, specifically what we're going to see in scripture is that parenting is an experiential analogy. I want us to see that we can only parent as well as we can obey our own Heavenly Father. And I want to show us that having children is all about multiplying the image of God, which, as we will see, is the duty for every single one of us as individuals first. 
And so the things that we will talk about today apply directly to every one of us, whether we are parents or not. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 26 through 31. Um, Navigate there on your phones, and uh, the words will also be behind me on the screen. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God said to them, uh, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, what on earth does that have to do with parenting? At no point in those verses was the word parenting used, was the word children used, but if you've been in my ministry long enough, you'll know that I have preached this same text a bunch of times. Um, In fact, I this week went back through my notes um, between my sermons here for church and uh, my lessons uh, for campus ministry just to see how many times I have referenced Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And uh, it was nearly 60 times. That's just in the last um, five years. So, and that's not other passages that, that I've counted. This is just these three chapters I've referenced over 60 times. Uh, Why? Why is that? Well, as I've explained before, there are only five chapters in the entire Bible that describe perfection, that show what it looks like when people are living in perfection. The first three and the last two, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and Revelation 21 and 22. And truthfully, Genesis 3 is only counted because there's a few verses there that are right before the fall. So really, we're talking about four chapters. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 are the only chapters in the Bible that describe perfect life. They're the only chapters in the Bible that describe life as it was always intended to be. These chapters describe what is normative rather than what has become normal. And the difference between those two words is that normative is the way that it's supposed to be. Normal is just the way that it is. And so these chapters show us the way that life is supposed to be. So we can learn a lot just from studying these four chapters. There's so many lessons that can be derived. And that's why I keep coming back here over and over and over and over. And I've taught um, on these passages to, to talk about our identity, our purpose, why we are the way we are, how to understand life, marriage, and so many other things. And uh, believe it or not, there is also a great deal in this passage that I believe that we can learn about parenting. What we will see here is that parenting was intended to be an experiential analogy. And some of you have heard me use that term before, experiential analogy. An experiential analogy is simply an analogy that you experience. There it is. That's the extent of my creativity in coming up with terms. Marriage, for example, is an experiential analogy. If we look at Ephesians chapter 5, it describes the fact that marriage is intended to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so it shows us in practical ways what it looks like to love, to submit, to sacrifice, to serve, to play the roles in relationship. 
to love and be loved, to know and be known. It's an analogy of that love that we deeply experience. It is an experiential analogy. We talked earlier this year about the the laws of the Old Testament covenant, uh, especially in places like Leviticus, and how those laws were experiential analogies for the Israelites. Every time they would obey these laws, it would be a reminder, a reminder to them of the holiness and the purity of God. And so they would live out in practical ways God's heart for them. Community is also an experiential analogy of the relationship between the triune Godhead, which is something we're going to look at a little bit later on in this message. Suffering is an experiential analogy of Christ suffering for us. Family is an experiential analogy of the family of God. And in the same way, parenthood is an experiential analogy of God's love for and God's cultivation of us. The way that we love our children with everything that is in us, the way that we commit to doing absolutely anything for them, the way that we lay our lives down for our children, the way that we hurt for them, the way that we root for them, the way that we support them, feed them, guide them, discipline them, teach them, the way that our hearts swell with pride and and love for them. All of those things are shadows, shadows of God's relationship with us. We are, according to scripture and, and, and according to the song that we just sang, sons and daughters of God. We are adopted into his family. We are co heirs with Christ, spiritual brothers and sisters with one another. That means that just like every other experiential analogy, parenthood is not about us. Parenthood is not about our kids. Parenthood is about God. Parenting is meant to turn our eyes upward. When you see a shadow of a thing, a a person, whatever. When you see a shadow, you know that the shadow is not the real thing. Anytime you see a shadow, that shadow is being cast by something real. It's being cast by something greater. And so when you see a shadow, you immediately look to see what is casting the shadow. And parenting is a shadow and is being cast by the greater reality of God's love for us. And so parenting is meant to turn our eyes upward to look at the reality. And so I want us to see two things from this passage this evening. And the first is one that applies to every single one of us, universally, whether you are a parent or not. So no matter who you are this evening, this is for you. Here's point number one. Before you can be a good parent, you must first be a good child. Before you can be a good parent, you must first be a good child. Another way of putting this would be, you can't train somebody else to do what you don't know how to do yourself. You can't show a person a path that you yourself don't know how to walk. And so... If our duty as parents is to teach our children how to follow obediently after the Lord, it's going to be pretty hard to do that unless we are first following the Lord ourselves. I said earlier that this is one of the passages uh, that's one of the few places that describes life as it's supposed to be. And here's what's interesting about this passage. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about this passage, but specifically for this moment, here's what's interesting. God creates humanity, and then he gives them one command. Just one. Be fruitful and multiply. And then included in that are the things that clarify it. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. He gives them one command. Just one. Nearly All of the commands that God gives to to mankind in the Bible happen after the fall into sin. And so when things were perfect, God only had to give man one command. That tells us that all the other commands that God gives are intended to bring us back to the original command. 
And if the original command had been kept, if the original command had been followed, there would have been no need for the rest of the commands. So what was the meaning of the original command? And how do we follow it? I want to break it down for us into two parts. First, what does it mean to image God? And second, what does it mean to follow the cultural mandate? So again, in this command, he says, be fruitful and multiply and then fill the earth. In this, it tells us that we are made in the image of God. And what we are filling the earth with, what we are multiplying is God's image. So the first part of this is imaging God. And the second part of it is doing the things that come along with imaging God. What we'll learn is called the the cultural mandate. So first we have to look at what does it mean to image God. For this, I'd like to borrow a framework from uh, Mark Cortez, author of Theological Anthropology, A Guide for the Perplexed, which sounds like a stunning read, does it not? (laughs) In this book, he offers three ways in which we are image bearers of God. He says that it is as a representational presence— a personal presence, and as a covenantal presence. And I know that sounds very technical and very academic, but we're going to simplify those things. So again, that's a personal presence, a representational presence, and a covenantal presence. When we are talking about being made in the image of God, that that doesn't simply mean that we look like him. It's not so much a visual, physical thing. And oftentimes, when we think of being made in the image of something, we immediately start thinking about physical attributes. But it's much, much deeper than that. God creates everything in the universe, everything in the world, and then the crown of creation is humanity. And he says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And then after saying that, he follows it up with a missional statement. He says, let them have dominion. So what that tells us is that in being image bearers, we have both an identity and a purpose. We have something to be and something to do. So here in the first place, Cortez offers the idea that we are image bearers of God as a representational presence. And basically what that means is that we are the representatives of the image of God to the rest of the world. Now we know that everything in creation ultimately is created for his glory. That all of nature testifies to the reality of its creator. But more than anything else in all of creation, mankind is his direct ambassador So we're intended to manifest his glorious presence in all the earth. And thus we're directed to have dominion, not for ourselves, but as his representatives. That's what an ambassador does, after all. An ambassador is a person who's living in a foreign country, but representing the government of their home country. And so oftentimes that ambassador has some level of authority. They have some level of political influence. They have some kind of particular immunity to the laws and the cultural mandates of the foreign country. But it isn't because of anything in and of themselves. It's not because they have power in themselves. It's not because they have authority in themselves. It is because they directly bear the authority of their home country. They are a representational presence in that foreign land. And so if I were an ambassador for the United States living in a foreign nation, my authority in that nation would have nothing to do with my name. It would have nothing to do with my abilities. It would have nothing to do with my power or presence or, or anything. It would have everything to do with the United States government. I would be there representing the United States in a foreign land. And so when I walk into the room, it is as if the, the United States government is walking into the room with all of its power, with all of its authority. But I would be going there directed by the government, not making choices for and by myself. 
And that is what God intends for humanity. That we would go into all the earth and have dominion over it. Not for ourselves, but as a representation of the presence of God. We are called to continue his work of creation. And so in this, we can see why the fall in Genesis 3 is so heinous. We, we understand with that framework why the fall of Adam and Eve is so terrible. Because rather than continuing as representatives of God, they sought to have rule and dominion for themselves, by themselves. The serpent slithers over and, and he convinces them that God is holding out on them. He convinces them that they didn't need to follow his commands. What they needed to do was assert themselves. They need to do whatever they want. See, God commanded Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it. But then he pointed at the one tree and he said, that tree, however, is under my dominion alone. Don't eat it. And instead of obeying, Adam and Eve decided we want to have dominion over that for ourselves as well. And so that was an act of treason because it was the act of an ambassador trying to overrule their own government. The president gives instructions to the ambassador, but then the ambassador says, you know what, actually, I'm going to make my own decisions and I'm going to be the own president. That will get you in a lot of trouble. Fired at the very least, thrown in prison, um, uh, more likely. And so then every sin that we commit, every single sin that we commit is a form of this usurping of divine power. Every sin we commit is, is, is taking dominion for ourselves. Instead of representing the presence and the dominion of God. Because when I break a commandment, I'm no longer acting as an ambassador. I'm acting as a radical agent. And it's only a matter of time before the government that I represent calls me to trial for treason. So the first way that we represent God, that we image God, is as a representational presence. The second way is as a personal presence presence. Cortez says this, the manifestation of God's presence as a personal presence is seen immediately in the creation account as God encounters humanity by engaging, even constituting them as personal beings. God initiates the creator-creature relationship and brings humanity into existence. He adds that the relationship is one of personal engagement and dialogue. So what that means is, in other words, we are created as personal beings. We are people who think, speak, communicate, and relate to others. And so, so much of what we long for, so much of what we desire in life, is explained in Genesis 1.26, where God says, let us... Make man in our image. What we have here is a conversation. A conversation that's taking place among the Godhead. Communicating within his triune self. In the context of community. In his book, The Sacred Romance, John Eldred says this. The story that is the sacred romance begins not with God alone, the author at his desk, but God in relationship. Intimacy beyond our wildest imagination. Heroic intimacy. The Trinity is at the center of the universe. Perfect relationship is at the heart of all reality. In the Trinity, God exists in perfect relationship. God is relationship. And this makes God entirely unique. Entirely unique from every other conception of God that there has ever been. You see, every other conception of God is a God who is needy. Every other God needs something or someone else to express the fullness of their being. In order for any...
Is this mic on? Perfect. Okay. Battery change right in the middle for a pit stop. Every other God needs something or someone else to express themselves. To show themselves powerful, they need someone to show themselves powerful too. To relate to someone else, they need someone else in order to relate to. And so, every other conception of God creating man is a God that needs man in order to express the fullness of themselves. But the triune God is not like that. The triune God is entirely unique in that in himself, he is complete. He he needs nothing and no one else. He expresses the fullness of relationship within himself. He expresses the fullness of power and love and submission and service and communication all within himself. So he didn't create us because he needed us. He created us out of an outpouring of the love that was in his heart and a desire to share the fullness of himself. So what that means is that we were not created because God was lonely. We were created to multiply his image of relationship. That is why we long for love. It's why we long for affection why we crave friendship, why, why we crave connection with other people. Because we were literally created in the image of connection. We were created in the image of community. So what the nature of God means for us is this. If God is love, if God is relationship, if God is community, and we are created in his image and in his likeness, that means we are created in the image of community and relationship and love. So it makes sense that we long for community. It makes sense that we long for love because it's central to our design. We were never intended to go it alone. We, we were never meant to be standalone individuals. None of us are God himself, triune with equal personhood. So what that means is in order for us to reflect the nature of God, like we were created to do, we need him and we need each other. You cannot obediently follow the directive of our creation to fill the earth with God's image by yourself. You need others. You need relationship. You need shared love. You need real intimacy in friendship. You need to serve and have others serve your needs. And that is why God created in his body the church. You see, we don't just show up on Sunday to sing songs and hear incredible preaching. You can do that online. You can have that on iTunes. You can sit at home, pull up your computer or your phone, and listen to incredible music and decent preaching in other places. (laughs) That's not why we're here. We are here because there's something here that iTunes cannot give us, and that's community. That's relationship. That's knowing and being known. That's building connection with other people. That's people knowing what our needs are. That's being honest with one another. That's coming in here and being genuine and authentic and not pretending that we have it all together. That's coming in here and being honest and saying, I'm broken, I'm messed up, and I need people to speak love into my life. iTunes cannot give that to you. And so God created us in his image as a personal presence. Finally, Cortez says that humanity images God as a covenantal presence. When we take the entire story of the Bible, when we take the canon of scripture, what we see is that Adam is a representative of mankind who is given a mission and fails that mission which necessitates Jesus, who is called the second Adam. And so then Jesus enters the world as a man to be the perfect mediator for the covenant relationship between God and man and is in himself the perfect image of God. 
Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus did what Adam could not do. Jesus did what Adam was supposed to do. Jesus did not fail where Adam failed. And so what we see is that the entire Bible is a covenant story. Specifically, it is a story that centers directly on the person of Jesus. And so Adam's role in the story is to represent perfection broken. Jesus shows perfection restored. Adam shows the beginning of the covenant between God and man and how sin tore it apart. Jesus shows the redemption of the covenant and how he bridges the gap to bring back the relationship that had been broken. So to sum all of this up, God created man in his image and likeness. In doing so, he sends us out into the world as his representatives. He creates us in the nature of his triune community as beings who love because he is love. And he created us to be in covenantal relationship with him and to bring others into that covenant relationship with us as well. That is what it means to image God. Which brings us now to the second part, which is known as the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is the term that describes God's original directive to mankind. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. In her book, Total Truth, Nancy Piercy uh, summarizes the cultural mandate like this. The first phrase be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures and to build civilizations. To further clarify her words, I would add to that that we do so as a way to multiply the image of God as we do those things as representational, personal, and covenantal ambassadors of God. So in our world, we have men and women who are so different, yet equal equally bearing the image of God. And together we are called to then fill the world with his image. We're called to bring chaos into order. And so we take the elements that God has given us in the natural world and we shape them. We build from them. We mix them together in a billion creative ways. We explore all of the beauty and the power and ability in every single one of those elements for the good of our fellow image bearers. Designing skyscrapers, discovering medicines, painting portraits, writing stories, and a thousand other pursuits. We're called to lead with the same kind and compassionate authority that God has for us stewarding our influence and our dominion with benevolence, not with selfishness that only serves us or our group. We marvel at the natural world and and we use the sciences to harness it and understand it, discovering all of the raw potential that God placed within it. We display the fullness of creativity in the same way that God did in creation, appreciating all of the beauty that reflects him in creation. We pursue excellence. We pursue welfare of fellow humanity. We fight for social justice and love. We do good to others as we have had good done to us. And all of that leads us ultimately to the great commission in which Jesus commands, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Because in spreading the gospel, 
We are truly following the cultural mandate to fill the earth with more of the image of God. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the purpose for which we have been created. This is the only place that you will ever find satisfaction. This is the only source of meaning that will fulfill your every longing and desire. It is the only way that you can find purpose in the mundane. The only way to inject eternal purpose and meaning into every moment of your everyday life. Without this truth, nothing that you do in the world will ultimately matter. You will find yourself lost and empty without direction or hope because you were designed to image God and to bring his image deeper into the chaos of the world however you have been specifically gifted to do so. Now thus far, this hasn't really sounded like a message on parenting. (laughs) But the truth is, You cannot parent the way that God intended unless you first understand all that I have just described. You can't be a parent that does what God wants you to do. You can be a parent that gives their children a safe, secure, affectionate upbringing. But just as you cannot live the life that you were designed to live without understanding your role as an image bearer, You also cannot be the parent you were intended to be unless you understand that parenting is about training your children to do the same. And so here is point number two. Parenting is designed to multiply God's image and extend the cultural mandate. When God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply, there was a very obvious implication uh, included in that command. And that was, have babies. God commanded them to have children and to raise those children to be a reflection of his image. He told them to have children and then to train their children and then to send their children out to keep fulfilling the cultural mandate. And we see that because every single time we see the fall, we also see God re-upping on the cultural mandate. He first gives the cultural mandate to Adam and Eve. Then the flood happens. And what's the first thing God tells Noah and his family after they come off the boat? Be fruitful and multiply. That command, the cultural mandate, is repeated over and over in stages uh, throughout the Old Testament. Now, I want to issue a a brief caveat here, and that is that Scripture does not command that every single one of us have children. The, The command given to Adam and Eve to have children was not the primary mandate, which we've just talked about, to image God, and that's given to all of us. The the mandate is to image God, and having children is one way that, that we can do that. There are many other ways, of course. And let's not forget here that the one person who imaged God better than anyone else in history was neither married nor had children, okay? So that person, of course, is Jesus, obviously. And Jesus himself said that some people, by wise choice, do not marry or have children. And so later in the series, maybe next week, I'll I'll talk about that. So if you don't have kids, if you don't want kids, if you cannot have kids... I don't want you to hear me saying at all that you are disobedient to God's desire for your life. There are very good reasons to not be married, good reasons to not have children. So if that's you, stick around. We're going to come back around to that. But for those of us who are parents, or for those of us who hope to be one day, what we learn here is that the purpose for having children is to multiply the image of God and to train them to do the very same thing. I mentioned earlier that the Great Commission flows out of the cultural mandate. In fact, the Great Commission was needed to restore the cultural mandate. Because people cannot follow the cultural mandate as it was intended until they are in covenant relationship with the Creator. 
And that is what the Great Commission accomplishes. It brings people into covenant relationship and discipleship with Jesus so that they can fulfill the cultural mandate in its original intention. It wasn't to just have kids. It was to raise covenantal kids. Our primary job as parents is to raise our children to know and love the Lord, to help them to understand the purpose for their lives. And so to do that, we have to model the mandate and we have to mold the mandate. Modeling the mandate is what I just talked about in point number one. Our kids need to see us living out that truth. It's the most important thing that we could ever give them. To see the image of God reflected in us. But too often what we do as parents is we recreate images of ourselves. We live vicariously through our kids. Like I talked about last week, if you want to see what it looks like to live vicariously through your children, turn on the television and watch Dance Moms. Or go to a Little League game and watch all the moms and dads screaming at umpires who are 14 years old because their kid is the next Babe Ruth and they just know it. There's an MLB contract right around the corner for Junior. They want something for their kids that they didn't get themselves and so they live vicariously through them. So often we as parents value our own name over the name of God. Which takes us again back to the fall in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve decided that their dominion, their desire was more important than God's. They decided God is holding out on us. And they decided that they were wise enough in their own eyes. They didn't need God telling them what to do. And so they hit the self-destruct button that God had been trying to protect them from. This is what we do so often as parents. We decide that our desires for our children are more important than God's desires. We want them to be safe. We want them to be secure and happy and have everything they want. And again, on the surface, I repeat, those are not necessarily bad things. I too want my children to be safe. I want them to be secure. I want them to be happy. But we can't stop there. Our desires for our children have to be so much deeper Ultimately, what is happening is that so many of us are buying into the cultural lie that you will be happy by following your heart. It's in almost every Disney song. It's in every message that we give in culture. It's everywhere. Follow your heart. We believe that we can create our own truth and just do whatever we want. We, like Adam and Eve, step up to the tree and say, I don't need God to tell me what's best. I can decide that on my own. And so instead of living out the cultural mandate, we create our own. And we destine ourselves for failure and disappointment. And then we take that and we pass it on to our kids. And we tell them, get good grades so that you can go into a good college, so that you can get a good job. And we stop there. We tell our kids, do whatever makes you happy. I'm happy as long as you're safe and happy. And so we believe the lie that our job as parents is to produce happy people who do whatever they please. As long as they are productive members of society, as long as they're not harming anybody else, as long as they're content in their jobs, we've done what we're supposed to do. But that is not true. Our mandate as parents was to be fruitful and fill the earth with the image of God. To participate in the original command. To reflect the person of God as we subdue the earth and have dominion over it as his under shepherds. And then we're to train our children to do the same. To go out into the world And to tame some part of it by bringing it under the rule of God. 
We are to bring them up in the mindset that this is our Father's world. And he has called us to fill it with his influence through our actions, through our attitudes, and through our accomplishments. That is our job as parents. Nothing less. When God said, fill the earth, and then immediately followed it with subdue it, we cannot miss there the connection to parenting. Because any of us who have kids knows this. Much of our time as parents is spent trying to subdue little spawns of chaos. <laughs> so much of our time is spent in pursuing, uh, in subduing and trying to have dominion over that. Children are born with a sinful nature. All right? Anyone who believes that mankind is basically good has never had a kid. Because no kid needs to be trained to be selfish. No kid needs to be trained to be mean or unkind or dishonest or rude. No kid. Every kid naturally is born with the inclination to punch, kick, and bite. And to say, me, 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 mine, mine, mine. That's how all of us are. And so our job as parents is to subdue, to train them up in the way that they should go. We have to mold them and shape them. We must model for them what it looks like to image God. And then we take their hand and we train them to do the same. If we do that, we can send them out into the world to do whatever God has called them to do, whether it is safe or not. So, I'd like to end this evening with a message to my children. Uh, where is Eli? Where did he go? Unbelievable. My own kid is not present in here. Um, would you subdue him? <laughs> would you please go and have dominion over him? And tell him that he needs to get his hiney to church. (laughs) Um, This message uh, for my children is spoken directly to them tonight, but recorded for posterity online uh, through video and audio, uh, so that when they're actually old enough to really pay attention, they can. So, Mateo, Elijah, Marisol, Elena, and Juliana Gozo in utero. My son, my daughter, I desire that you would look out into this great and wild world. Look at it with wide eyes that are filled with wonder in awe of your heavenly father who so creatively breathed out this masterpiece. (laughs) Yes, those are wide eyes, thank you. I want you to stay close to my side and I'll show you his image everywhere you look. I will show you his fingerprints on the leaves, on the lions, and on your lineage. I'll show you why he has placed me in this particular place doing what he has particularly called me to do at this particular time in history. I'll train you to see why the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech. Night to night it reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice are not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from his heat. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. My son, my daughter, let me show you how the heavens proclaim his righteousness. My son, my daughter, I will say to you like Job, ask the beasts and they will tell you, the birds of the heavens and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you, the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all of these does not know that the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. 
My child, I will teach you these things, show you his ways. I will teach you how to hold and to wield the word of the Lord. I will show you to see the world through gospel lenses. I will tell you to watch mommy and daddy, to place your feet in our footsteps, to follow us as we follow Jesus. And then, after I have apprenticed you in his knowledge, I will send you out to subdue some part of this wild world for his glory, to have dominion over some form of work and to fill that place with the glory and image of God. And I know that if you do that, that is where true happiness will come from. You will not find happiness in a job or in a task or in any kind of accomplishment if it is not being done for the glory of God. Even if you do something that you're passionate about, if you do it for yourself, it will be empty. No, my child, do it for the kingdom. Do it for the kingdom, even if it is unsafe. And perhaps someday, if it is the will of the Father, I will watch as you bring image bearers into this world. I will look into their tiny eyes and be reminded of the day that I first looked into yours, knowing that my life would never be the same. And your eyes will reveal that your heart has been filled with new love and new purpose to cultivate this little life and teach them in the way that they should go, just as I have taught you. No matter what you do, Eli, no matter what you do, Marisol, do it for him. If you do that, my joy will be complete. Daddy loves you, little image bearer. Go and multiply that image in your own creative, beautiful, unique way. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what we are called to as individuals and what we're called to as parents. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for truth. Thank you that you are a good father. Thank you that you have given us parenthood as a way to show us your love. That as we feel these things for our kids, we know that it's a shadow of the way that you feel about us. God, I pray especially for anyone listening online watching the video here in person, wherever they may be. God, I pray for any person who has never given themselves over to you to live in that purpose. For anyone who has tried to find happiness in all of the other things that the world offers. Lord, I pray that you would call those people to salvation. Call those people to adoption, to be a son or a daughter God, I pray that you would give us the opportunity to speak into questions and doubts and and give us the opportunity to converse into all, all that goes into a relationship with you. God, I pray for every one of us, Lord, that, that we would remember our eternal purpose in, in everything that we do. That as we go to work tomorrow, we could do it for your glory by subduing the books, by having dominion over the computer programs, by filling our workstation with the image of God, by going to class for your glory, by interacting with classmates and friends and co-workers for your name and your kingdom. Lord, inject eternal purpose into every moment of our lives because you adopted us as your children. God, I pray that as we sing this uh, closing song of worship, Lord, that you would call our hearts to you. Again, Lord, if there are any people who need to submit to you, Lord, I pray that tonight that would happen. God, that if there are places in our hearts that we haven't given over, that we, that we haven't surrendered, Lord, that you would convict us of that and that we would lay those things down at your feet. And Lord, in the places where we are broken, where we are in pain, where we need your love, God, I pray that you would minister to those places in our hearts that your fatherly affection for us that is so perfect, that is without fail or flaw, would fill the empty cracks of our broken souls. 
We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, we will close in our final song of worship. Um, And after we close, if there are conversations that you guys want to have, if there are things that you want to talk about, please come and talk to me. Because we don't want this night to end without you doing business with the Lord. Stand as we uh, close in worship.